You're listening to the College Age Movement Podcast. What is going on, you guys? Hope that you have had a fantastic week. We are in part three of our series, Seven Mile Miracle. What we're doing is we're looking at seven statements of Jesus from the cross, and then we're looking at how they apply to our discipleship journey. This is uh, inspired by a book written by Stephen Furtick uh, from a few years ago. And in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about a few things. Last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus is not passive. We also talked about um, the idea that we should be people of persistent faith. People of persistent faith. If you have not heard the first two parts of this series, go ahead and head back and listen to those first two parts. This week, we're going to be talking about a word of relationship spoke from Jesus to his people from the cross. The Gospel of John is the only gospel to record the third statement from Jesus because John was the only one there. At this point, the other disciples had abandoned Jesus and they had ran away in fear. And there's probably a a whole bunch of different reasons why they had run away. I think contextually, we have to remember that it's very likely that the disciples were in their teens or early 20s at this point. There had to been a ton of fear. The person that they thought was the Messiah was getting hung on the cross. But John was Jesus's best friend. We'll see here that John actually calls himself in the Gospel of John, the one whom Jesus loved. And maybe that was a little bit of arrogance, or maybe that was the fact that him and Jesus were actually best friends. And then we're also going to see three women mentioned in this scripture. We're going to see Mary, Uh, the mother of Jesus. We're going to see Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. These, These three Marys are standing at the cross with Jesus as Jesus speaks to his people. So John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, it says that standing near the cross were Jesus's mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Even while he is hanging on the cross, Jesus' concern was for those that he loved. He wasn't concerned with himself. He wasn't concerned with his own situation. But he was concerned with his mother. He was concerned with his best friend's. Here's the first point this week is that relationship isn't a request. It's a command. Jesus does not hope that we become people of relationship. Jesus expects this. Now, now hear me. I know that some of us are hardwired extroverts that love the idea of being in relationship with all kinds of people. And like we thrive off of lots of different relationships. But some of us are listening today and you're like, wow, no, I'm an introvert and relationships are actually really difficult for me. And I have like one or two really close friends and I could do without a ton of people in my life. Perfectly fine. There's no, no distinction on what those relationships exactly have to look like or how many of them there have to be. But Jesus is making something really clear. Relationship isn't a request. It's a command. Jesus makes it through clear through his life and his death that relationship is vital. He built relationships through his ministry for years. And then from the cross, he's orchestrating ministry or excuse me, orchestrating relationship in his very last moments. Would we be people who understand how important relationship is? Contextually, it's key that we look at the fact 
that Jesus was probably less concerned with biological family than he was spiritual family. And some of you love that statement because you come from a broken family and you're like, yeah, rad. Like I like my church family. I love my spiritual family. Uh, but me and my biological family don't really get along. And some people are like, no, I love my biological family so much. I've been blessed with an incredible family and I would never, ever put my church family or my spiritual family above them. Now, now hear me, like both are incredibly important. But I think at the end of the day, we have to realize that one is temporary. Biological family doesn't mean eternal. The spiritual family, if you share a relationship with Jesus, if you are in tandem believing that Jesus is the Messiah and you're walking that faith out, that's an eternal relationship. We get to spend eternity with each other in heaven. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50 says, As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside, and they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Jesus, without question, loved his family, but he was making a clear point. We must be focused on eternity. What's really interesting about this interaction between Jesus and John and Mary is Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, here is your mother. And then looks at his mom and says, dear woman, here is your son. Like this is so important that we understand as the eldest son in their culture, Jesus had the ability to decide who was going to take care of his mom. And he, he had brothers and he had sisters But he chose John because John believed that Jesus was the Messiah. John had faith and he wanted Mary to be in the the comfort and under the care of his best friend who believed that he was the Messiah. James, who is a brother of Jesus, who eventually writes parts of the Bible isn't a follower of Jesus yet. He's a little bit skeptical that, I mean, if my brother came out and said, I'm the Messiah, I probably have a hard time with that too. But after the resurrection of Jesus, James comes around and becomes this incredible apostle of Jesus. But what we have to understand is that at this moment, he wasn't there yet. And Jesus was like, nope, I want my mom to be under the care of her spiritual son, of her spiritual brother, so to speak, that as a child of God, as children of God, Mary and John had a spiritual relationship that Jesus was more comfortable with. We have to understand the power that is held by spiritual community. It's not secondary to blood. It's not secondary to blood. I always always think about my grandparents. I love my grandparents dearly. One of my grandpas has passed away at this point, but one set of my grandparents, Mormon, one set of my grandparents, Catholic. And so we just had differing views on several different things. And we would talk about faith. And when I started following Jesus, like super, super seriously, uh, probably into my high school years, and I could develop a a theological base and I I had ideas and understandings beyond just like I accepted Jesus into my heart and all of those beautiful things, but pretty elementary things, we would start to have conversations and, and we just didn't line up. And I remember so many of my friends having grandparents that they, they were so close to. Like there was just like they listened to their grandparents. They got advice from their grandparents. They, they did so many things. And like I want to reiterate, like I love my grandparents. I love them so much. But we do not share a faith. And what I found is that all my friends who had these grandparents who they were really, really close to and like not just physically like 
oh, like I hang out with my grandparents a lot, but they were like spiritually and emotionally tied to them. Those grandparents had relationships with Jesus. And it just really highlighted how important it was that Jesus be at the center of all the closest relationships in my life. I have people in my life who are 50 years older than me who love Jesus dearly, and I would call them spiritual grandparents. They, they've actually guided me in my relationship with Jesus, and they've been vitally important to so many aspects of my life. Blood doesn't take precedence over our spiritual family. I think we love our family. I think we take dear, dear care of them. But we also have to understand the importance of the spiritual relationships in our lives. So when it comes to our spiritual relationships, I want to look at our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with one another. The first point on this is that God is the Father, God the Father. For many of us, our relationship with God has been anything but intimate. It has more of a ruler to subordinate feel. And I think we need to be reminded. I need to be reminded that God is not just my king. It's not just our king, but he's our father. He's a perfect, loving father. When we do not tap into the intimacy that God wants to have with us, our relationships can often have more of an obligatory feel, not one that's that's full of authenticity or full of intimacy. E- Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us. And he chose us. He chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. God the Father. What we have to realize is that our identity needs to be rooted steadfastly in the fact that we are sons and daughters of God. We have been adopted to sonship, not servanthood. We've been adopted to sonship, not servanthood. And I know you're saying like, but are we supposed to serve? Yes, 100% we're supposed to serve. We are supposed to be servants of the living God, but we serve out of obedience, not obligation. We serve because we are being obedient, because we love our father, because we trust our father, because we're being obedient to him, not because we are obligated to him like he is some ruler that we have to follow or we're going to get smited. So we serve Jesus. We serve out of obedience, not obligation. So if we can get in that frame of mind, accept the truth that God is our perfect father, What does it mean for us? What does God the Father do in us and for us? First of all, the Father loves. John 3.16, probably the verse that so many of us memorized first in our walk with Jesus. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. For God so loved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. He gave everything for us because he knew that through his son, many of us would come to know his love. I know that it feels like a simple point, but there are so many of us that need to be reminded that God desperately loves us. I can't like fully wrap my mind around this. I'm a dad. I have three kids. I love my kids so much. I would do anything for my kids. I would die for my kids. I would probably kill for my kids. Like I, I would do anything for my kids to keep them safe. I would do absolutely anything. And yet that love does not even scratch the surface of the type of love that God has for us. My love is conditional. Like I love my kids, but the amount that I love my kids probably depends on how we're doing that day. My kids can, can really annoy me. They can really frustrate me. And and, and I would never want to say, I would never say like, Oh, I love you less today. And I like, 
uh, minuscule amounts that are, that are probably in this scale, so to speak. But there are days where I'm frustrated with my kids and there are days when I'm like infatuated and like completely, completely in love with my kids. God doesn't change. His emotions don't control whether or not he loves us or how much he loves us. He loves us the same yesterday, today, and forever. My fatherly love is a human, imperfect, broken fatherly love. Our fathers, our perfect father's love is not imperfect. It is, in fact, perfect. God surpasses any human love that we could possibly put out there. And it's hard to wrap our minds around, but it's true. So the father loves, and secondly, the father is available. Psalm chapter 121, the whole thing, it's just eight verses. It says, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. He will not let you stumble. The one who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleeps. The Lord himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as your protective shade. The sun will not harm you by day nor by moon at night. The Lord keeps you from all harm and watches over your life. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and you go, both now and forever. The Lord does not slumber. He is always near. He always listens. I have this terrible tendency in believing that God is only available when things are clicking in my relationship with him. I pray for my family every single night. And if I've had a good day, I pray and I feel great about that prayer. I'm like, man, the Lord heard it. The Lord's going to honor the prayer. He's going to work with the prayer. He's going to like answer prayer, like all of those things. But if I have a day where I lose my temper with my kids. If I have a day where I lust, if I have a day where I covet my neighbor's stuff, like whatever it may be, I have a day where I'm like, man, I, I didn't have a great day today. I lay down in bed and before I go to bed, I go to pray. And I'm like, I don't know if the Lord would even listen. Why would the Lord listen to me, messy, broken sinner? He is available both now and forevermore. My prayer is that we would be people who refuse to relegate God to a moody, disappointed being who is constantly on the fence with us, that he will listen to us on our good days, but he won't listen to us on our bad days. That's BS. That is not something that is ever going to be from the Lord. That's straight from the devil. And we need to be people who understand that God is always available to listen. That as we step to the cross, he's not just available, he's approachable. He's approachable. We can approach the cross and we can hit our knees and we can praise and we can ask and we can plea and we can be angry and we can be just, we can be anything and everything that we need to be in front of our Savior, in front of our Father who loves us so much. He is available and approachable. The Father is also convicting not condemning. The Father is convicting, not condemning. As we read through Scripture, we constantly see shades of the Father through Jesus. He's always correcting and convicting his disciples. Sometimes it comes across as pretty harsh. If you've read through the Gospels, you're like, man, Jesus, like that seems pretty rough. But I think what we have to realize is that Jesus is in his 30s and his disciples are teenagers, maybe in their 20s. He probably has some time where he had to lay down the law and be like, what don't you get about this? What don't you like? Why aren't you listening? Look at me. Like put your listening ears on. Like, come on. Come on, Peter. Come on over here, Matthew. I need you to listen to me. You're not doing the things that I've asked you to do. He loves them enough to challenge them. He loves them enough to convict them. Hebrews chapter 12, verses five through six. It says, and have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. Then verse 11 goes on to say, no discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. Can I get an amen? No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. 
There will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in his way. You see, we are convicted because it leads to repentance and a corrected path. We are convicted because Jesus wants the best for us. That's all he wants for us is human flourishing. So he convicts and he corrects, but he doesn't condemn because condemn condemnation has a finality to it and it's never from God. Furtick in his book says this is about this and this is about condemnation. He says it's from your enemy below or your confusion within plain and simple. It's from the enemy enemy below or your confusion within Satan is our critic. We are our probably our own worst critics. Jesus is our corrector. He's not our critic. He's our corrector. He is our challenger. He's also our encourager and our lover. He loves us so much. Jesus only wants what's best for us. Okay, so that's a lot on our relationship with God, but let's touch on a relationship with one another. The next point is this, the family of God. If one of the last things that Jesus did before his death was to emphasize family, it should be one of the first things that we do. Community has to be one of the mile markers for our journey with Jesus. It's true that we're each on an individual journey with Jesus, but we were never created to do those journeys alone. Romans chapter 12, verse 4 through 5 says, Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a specific function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. We have to be people who are willing to get involved with each other's lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to know every single detail about every single person's life, but it's a challenge to step out of our own self-focused world and learn about others. Uh, I also get the opportunity at the church, not just to be a young adult pastor, but also to hang out with high schoolers every week. And over the last year, I've had so many opportunities to give people rides home. And I'm just blown away at the conversations that we get to have. Like there are times where I'm like, man, I just want to go home. I just want to get home to my wife. My kids are probably already sleeping. It's like 1030 at night. I I just want to get home. I want to get a night's sleep, a good night's sleep. I, I just... I'm human, so like there's just a tiredness sometimes. And it feels like every one of those times, the, the correcting father, the convicting father steps and says, like, no, you need to do this. There's something for you here. And I can't tell you how many times I've given a 15-year-old year a ride home, 16-year-old a ride home, whatever it may be. And I get to hear their story, and I get to hear their perspective, and I get to hear their back, like everything. And I'm just blown away at their relationships with Jesus. I'm blown away at their life circumstances and how they're handling. I'm blown away at just like the perspective that they have on the simplest things. And I'm sitting there like writing notes, being like, this is a sermon. I'm definitely not going to give you any credit for this kid, but like I'm going to take it. And I'm going <laughs> to, just kidding. But like there, there are so many things that I hear from students, and I'm just like, wow, like I am so blown away how Jesus uses the, the simplest of relationships, the simplest of five-minute car rides, and says, like, no, there's something here. Relationship is so important. And every single person in our community, in our sphere of influence, has a different story, a different background, a different perspective, and, and relationship with Jesus. They have a different relationship with Jesus than we do, and it's a beautiful thing that nobody has a relationship with Jesus that you do. But that also means that there are billions of people out there who have a relationship with Jesus that you don't have. How much could we learn if we sat down and took the time to listen to each other? I want to issue a challenge today, and I want to preface it with a statement. And the statement would go something like this. Do not get to know only people who follow Jesus. Expand your circle. Faith in a vacuum is cramped and limiting. Be challenged and challenge people outside the family of God. I want to I want to preface it. I am not saying that we just need to have a relationship with people who love Jesus. I think that would be very, very dangerous. We need to ask questions of people who don't follow Jesus. We, we just There needs to be so many relationships with people outside of the family of God. But for this challenge, I just want to preface it with that statement because this is the challenge. 
in the next six months, I think it's just helpful to put a time frame on it because it maybe gives us a goal. I would challenge you, I would challenge me to get to know, truly get to know someone, have a conversation with someone who is a different race than you, who's a different gender than you, who's part of a different age group than you, and is a part of a different theological background than you or part of a different denomination. Because what we'll find is that our own personal relationships with Jesus will be so much stronger if we include other people's perspectives. And I promise you that a black brother or sister has a different perspective than you do with Jesus. I promise you that if somebody's been around for a lot longer than you, they know more than you. They follow Jesus differently than you. They've experienced things that you haven't experienced. I promise that people who are younger than you that are part of the next generation coming up are experiencing Jesus in a different way. I promise the denominations should not be a barrier to us building the big C church, to us building the kingdom of God. We're not here to build church buildings. We're not here to, to fill chapels. We're not here to fill worship centers. We're here to fill heaven. The last point tonight is this together. Just that one word together. We cannot walk out other people's faith for them, but we can walk out other people's faith with them. Nobody can walk our faith out for us, but they can walk our faith out with us as we pursue Jesus. There's not a single one of us that can accomplish alone what we could accomplish together. We have been purposely designed for community. Let's do that well. And I think the best way that we can do community is do what the Father does for us. Let's love each other well. Let's be available for one another. Let's convict. Let's challenge. But never, ever condemn. Thank you for listening to the College Age Movement podcast. College Age Movement's in-person gatherings meet Tuesday nights at 7, and we would love to have you there. If you are unable to join us in person, you can engage online at faithchapel.cc or follow us on our socials at collegeagemvmt.